This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 4. We're in a series studying this letter, the Apostle Paul. And today we're, we're in Philippians chapter 4. Be looking at verses 10 through 13. Just enjoyed the couples. Thank you so much for encouraging us. I remember meeting the Golds their first Sunday. They didn't mention me, everybody else in the church, but that's, I get used to that. And I remember them saying they were going out to eat with Jake Cronin. I thought I'd never see him again, but the Lord was at work. Here they are. Philippians chapter 4, we're coming to an end of our series on Philippians, and it's been a gift to us and our church, because this is God's Word. It's inerrant, it's inspired, it's powerful, it's authoritative in our lives, it's a gift from God. Today we have the joy of looking at verses 10 through 13. Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that. I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. May the Lord bless our study of His Word today. Escape to Christ. The answer is Christ. Go to Christ. Come to Christ. This letter is just screaming at us. Drawing us to Him. Isn't it? I've been somewhat laid up over the last few months, and I decided to do a deep dive along the way into the Woodstock Music and Art Fair. Three days of peace and music. I, I'm from the baby boomer generation, but I, there's two parts of it. There's kind of the Woodstock part and the dazed and confused part. I'm the dazed and confused part. 
So I'd never really looked at it, but I decided to do a deep dive. One website that just focuses on American history says Woodstock was an opportunity for people to escape into music and spread a message of unity and peace. Although the crowd at Woodstock experienced bad weather, muddy conditions, and a lack of food, water, and adequate sanitation, the overall vibe, it's my favorite word, the overall vibe there was harmonious. The promoters were young people. They initially expected about 50,000 folks to come. They eventually sold 186,000 advance tickets at $18 a pop. There ended up being over half a million people that came to a 600-acre farm. They had a fence around it. They had a gate. It was trampled down. And they announced, it's a free concert. There was one bathroom for every 833 people. A bit like Neyland Stadium, if you've ever been there. <laughs> one guy who went there is now a music critic. He wrote, the 50th anniversary, he wrote an article in the New York Times called Woodstock's Contradictions. By the time my brother and I had trudged to the site from the car we'd abandoned by the side of a clogged country road in New York, no one was taking tickets and the fences that the organizers had put up around Max Yeager's farm had been or would soon be toppled. Overwhelmed and unprepared, the promoters declared that Woodstock was a free festival and welcomed the hordes they couldn't have turned back anyway. And as hundreds of thousands of people continued to arrive, the music and mythologizing began, along with the rain, the mud, the giddy sensation of being part of an unexpected multitude, the forecasts of disaster, the helicopter overflights to get musicians and food in and medical emergencies out, the sheer implausibility of it all. I thought that captured it. What was going on? It was just amazing. The woods, the, there's a website now. You can buy all kinds of shirts and hats, which I think kills the vibe. But they call the event one of the greatest happenings of all time, if they don't say so themselves. But Charles Schultz, the Peanuts fame, did name the little bird Woodstock after the event. And in the midst of very adverse circumstances, the overall vibe was really unity and peace. But it's, it's probably better to bill it as three days of peace, music, and drugs. There weren't any murders. Three people did die, but there were 742 drug overdoses rep reported. Two of the main musicians in the festival, Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin, would die of overdoses in a little over a year. Hendrix was 28 and Joplin was 27. It was an opportunity to escape, but there were contradictions. 
So what stuck out to me in my deep dive of Woodstock was that the question being asked is, is still the same. How can we escape the curse? How can we escape the curse that's on this fallen world? People are looking for peace, love, and harmony. And they'll, they'll, they'll flock anywhere and they'll endure anything if they think the answer is there. What stuck out to me as very sad was that the festival didn't deliver. <laughs> now, my point is that the good news is that Paul the Apostle has the answer to that question. And he makes it crystal clear throughout this letter and especially in this text. I think Paul could have been the most iconic moment of the Woodstock music and art fair if he had been given the microphone like the, the so-called Woodstock guru, the yoga master from India, who began the whole conference. He had a giant white beard. And he famously called music the celestial sound that controls the whole universe. Well, music is a gift, but it's not the answer. It doesn't control the whole universe. He's wrong. If they'd have had a few minutes listening to the Apostle Paul, the crowd would have discerned quite a difference in these two religious men. Paul would have been eager to accept this invitation, much like he did in Athens when he went to the Areopagus for a kind of a philosophical festival searching for truth. He might have said to, to the folks at Woodstock, men and women of Woodstock, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. And what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And yet he is actually not far from each one of you, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. He can be found on Highway 61. Actually, a true revival sprang from that generation, sometimes called the Jesus Movement. Some of you were converted during that time. They're very old now. <laughs> Hundreds of thousands of people came to Christ. They, they found the answer. They saw what wasn't the answer, and they turned to Christ. So how can we escape the curse? Where can we find three days of peace and love and harmony? Where can we find contentment, joy, satisfaction? Well, the Apostle Paul learned the secret. We're going to walk through this text, and then we're going to look at three vital lessons about contentment. 
So look with me to verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. That now at length you have revived your concern for me. You'll remember this. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. He reports his great joy. He had received that gift from the Philippians at last. Rejoicing is all through the letter. We've seen it time and again. It's like when he sets down with his pen to write to the Philippians, his heart is just filled with joy. He just bursts out in joy. This church brings him joy. But he expresses it here with more excitement than any other place. Great. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. This is next level joy. When Epaphroditus arrived and he had this gift from the church, he was overjoyed. But we need to see he's, he, he's rejoicing, but it's not in the gift. He's very clear, very intentional, very emphatic. It was in the Lord. It's not the gift. He's striving to make this clear. Ultimately, it was the Lord who provided for Paul. It was the Lord who supported him. The Philippians didn't pay his salary. He didn't look at it like that. They didn't meet his needs. He knew this was God at work in his life, just like he knew being in prison in chains was God at work in his life. He is rejoicing greatly in the Lord. He's aware that gifts are an expression of God's faithfulness in his life, and he wants to make that point because he wants them to understand he provides for Paul and he provides for them. Look down in verse 19. We'll look at this next week. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ. Paul's focus is on the Lord's provision. He wants to encourage them. The Lord's going to provide for them too. Gifts didn't distract Paul from his central focus, his worldview, and it transforms how he views giving in the church, giving and receiving. It's not so much a transaction between two people, is it? One commentator said, it isn't a human horizontal exchange, but a divine human triangular interaction. It's a triangular interaction. It's a triangle. God, two people. When Walter Hansen says, God initiates giving, empowers givers, supplies gifts, and meets needs. Participating in the activity of God by giving and receiving leads to rejoicing greatly in the Lord. They were, they were cheerful givers, legendary. Paul was a joyful recipient, and both are in the Lord. He, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. The reason that this giving gave Paul such great joy was that it was an expression of God's care, but also of their love and concern for him personally. You have revived 
your concern. It's like the word refers to plants that go dormant, but then in the springtime they bloom and bear fruit. It's like the Philippians are like a fruit tree. They're blooming again. Wintertime has passed. Springtime has brought the renewal of their concern. For him, concern was a relational term. We've seen it again and again in Philippians. It always refers to an attitude, a mindset, a way of feeling, a way of thinking. Chapter 1, it's right for me to feel this way about you. It's the same word. He's expressing his affection for him. Chapter 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Same word, of one mind. It describes being in harmony with one another. It's all about their partnership, this concern. He says in chapter 3, it's the way a mature Christian thinks about other people. It's an attitude of mind that builds relationships. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Made him rejoice. They're concerned. They feel this way about Paul. And this gift expresses how they think about him, how they feel about him. It expresses what he's been calling for throughout this letter, the mind of Christ. Considering others more important than yourself. That's what that gift said to him. And that's why he's rejoicing. Now quickly, he wants to explain to them, this is not a subtle reproof. You were indeed concerned for me before, but you had no opportunity. He is thankful. He doesn't want them to misunderstand. I'm not reproving you. He, he knows they were always concerned about him. He's believing the best. He, di- he didn't question their motives when he sat in that prison in chains and heard nothing. This is the only church that supported him during that season. Imagine how tempting that would have been. And just for a moment, let's pause and realize how much damage is done to relationships when we assume motives when we paint the worst picture when we presume to know what's going on in somebody's heart but Paul doesn't do that he's sitting in a prison in chains and he's not hearing from his friends but he's believing the best you were concerned I know you were concerned then the gift came and he's able to write with great joy He thinks they had deep concern the whole time. He's fighting the same mental battles we would, believing the best. Why didn't they have opportunity? We can't know for sure. Maybe it was a severe trial. We know in 2 Corinthians, from 2 Corinthians, that they, the Philippian church, went through severe trials. Maybe Paul's imprisonments or his journeys. There was no Amazon.com, so it wasn't like they could just easily send something to him. We can only speculate, but we know they were robbed of an opportunity. They had this mindset, this feeling, this concern, but they weren't able to do it. And then in verse 11, he wants to clarify, wants to make one thing very, this is very important to Paul. Not that, look for that phrase, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned 
in whatever situation I am to be content. He is clarifying why I'm rejoicing, why I'm grateful. He's emphatic. He denies that it's about his needs being met by their financial gift. Not that. Says it again in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift. He, he's determined to stop his friends from thinking that he values their renewed concern for him because his needs are met. Not that. Not that. He didn't want his gratitude to be misunderstood. He was not discontent in God's providence in his life. He was content in chains. He's not talking about his needs, his wants. Not that. He isn't denying that his circumstances were bad, that he had lack. There were no Woodstock helicopters flying over, dropping him medical care and food and clothes. But he, he denies that his lack is why he had great joy. He, he has great joy in the Lord. He turns our attention to his experience of the power of God in his soul. That's what he wants us to see. He wants to turn our attention to his experience of the presence of God in the midst of adversity. That's what we prayed for this morning for Riley Vaughn in the midst of recovering we want her to experience God's presence and power. It's, it's the triangular nature of the partnership. God, the Philippians, Paul. It changes everything, doesn't it? They have a partnership, but it isn't just a human partnership. Both sides need God. And God will provide. That's the point of this text. That's why he's so strong in his denial. He depends on God. He is not dependent solely on their support. And he, he feels strongly about this because he's learned a lesson. He's learned from his very vast experience. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He has some hard-won wisdom for us. Because he's gone through some difficult experiences. He's been blessed. And he's learned. And he wants to share it with us. He's going to describe some of these things in verse 12. And along the way, a lifetime of ups and downs, he's learned to be content. It, it doesn't come naturally even to the great Apostle Paul. I took a class in college in forest recreation. Terribly difficult class. It's, it is really one of the most memorable classes I ever had in college. Sad to say. They did studies of recreation. Got my attention. They, they tried to determine how, when, why we benefit from a vacation or recreation of any kind so that they could serve people better, I suppose. And I remember there was a bell graph that showed that the, the joy, 
the satisfaction of a vacation gradually grew as you got closer to leaving. And then as soon as you left, the joy began to decline. Now, that was over 40 years ago, and I have tested it out along the way, and it's accurate. I have always thought about it. And sure enough, as soon as you leave for that vacation, it's downhill from there. We actually have two graphs, one showing the, the satisfaction in other things. Do we have that? Contentment in other things. Some of you, this is way over your head, but... You leave for the, you plan the vacation, and, and satisfaction is at its peak, and then you leave, and it goes downhill. And then we have contentment in Christ. This is what Paul's describing. Along the way, he had ups and downs. There were ups and downs, but there's always this progress in joy. The joy, the contentment, the satisfaction that Paul is talking about isn't like a vacation. There are ups and downs, but joy grows more and more until the full and final day. And through a lifetime of ups and downs, he's learned to be content. And he's sitting in jail, in chains, and he is greatly rejoicing, and he wants us to know why. His experiences are like a lab. They changed him. One commentator, he did his homework, mastered his lessons, and passed his tests. He knows the answer. How can I escape from the curse of this life? He knows how to escape. He knows where we can find peace and love and harmony. Verse 12, I, I know how to be brought low. I know how. To abound in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. This is the school where he learned to be content. Paul lived through just polar opposites of experience. You read about his life, you could, you'll see this. And he's learned how to do something. So now he says, I know how. It's like we're watching a first century YouTube video on how to be content. Right here it is. I learned how. Let me show you how. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. I know both how to be humbled and I know how to prosper. When he says to be brought low, it's the same verb he used in chapter 2 when he talked about Christ's self-humbling in the incarnation. Same word, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Christ was brought low. To be brought low means to lose your status, to be humiliated. Paul learned to be content when he was living in poverty, when he didn't have anything. He also learned to be content when he was doing well, when he was abounding, when he was prospering, when he was overflowing with everything he needed. He had learned how to be content in the midst of prosperity. And you may think, well, that's not a problem. Yeah, I think it is a problem. I think there is a need 
to learn contentment. The folks that attended Woodstock were mostly rich. Ecclesiastes 5 says, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 1 Timothy 6 again, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Again, I've, I've been a pastor for almost 40 years. And my, my experience is that more people fail the test of prosperity than those who fail the test of adversity. I think the test of prosperity is more difficult. When they prosper, people tend to set their hopes on the wrong things, and in the end, they're not satisfied. Have a tendency to covet just more and more. So, so Paul's contentment in the midst of prosperity really is a rare jewel. He knew extremes. He, he learned to gladly love God in the midst of both. He has an advanced degree in both ends of the spectrum of experience. He knows how to live with hunger. He knows how to be content when he's full. In any and every circumstance, He's learned the secret. I have learned the secret. It's a rare word. It was used by religions that would have been very well known to his original readers. They knew what this word meant. It was like, it was, it was describing the people on the inside. They had a secret. They had learned something about these so-called mystery religions. They had learned the secret, some sort of ritual they had gone through and they were in now. You were out or others were out. That's the words he's using. It would have resonated with his original readers. They knew what he was talking about. He intentionally did the, it's a, it's a metaphor for insider knowledge. I have insider knowledge. I know a secret. I'm on the inside. I've learned the secret. He's claiming he's on the inside. Spoiler alert. The secret is Christ. (laughs) He knows Christ is the one who empowers. He knows Christ gives joy. Christ gives contentment. Christ gives satisfaction. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Contentment isn't learned simply by experience, simply by growing old and going through all kinds of circumstances. It's learned by knowing Christ. That 
is the secret, the great treasure of the kingdom. Fellowship with God in Christ, you have to learn the secret. So in verse 13, he tells us, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He experienced the power of the Spirit of Christ in his life in every circumstance. And he greatly rejoices in prison, in chains, because he can do that through him who empowers him, who gives him strength. It's the only explanation for the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Several commentators talked about how often this verse is wrenched out of context. I immediately saw Tim Tebow with the black under his eyes in Philippians 4.13, playing for the hated Florida Gators. One commentator said, it is not uncommon to find Philippians 4.13 written with a magic marker on the athletic tape wrapped around an athlete's wrist or ankle. He dreams of a pro career. She pictures herself in the Olympic Games. Christ is the one who can make that happen. But the promise might be more appropriately applied if he is never drafted or she has a career-ending injury, yet finds through Christ the grace to do so in faith and hope, giving glory to God all the while. Or if one of them does achieve the dream, to do so humbly, without being ensnared by the powerful trappings that surround such success and fame. Paul's joy is in the Lord. Christ enabled him to rejoice. Jerry Bridges says, quoting 1 Timothy 6.6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment with what we have, whether it's possessions or station in life or mental or physical abilities, is worth far, far more than all the things we don't have. Here are three vital lessons about contentment that we learn from our text today. Paul teaches us. Three vital lessons. Number one, your contentment does not depend on your circumstances. Your joy, your satisfaction does not depend on your circumstances. Remember, remember the Disney song, Zippity-Doo-Dah, Zippity-Day? My, oh my, what a wonderful day. Plenty of sunshine heading my way. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day. Mr. Bluebird's on my shoulder. It's the truth. It's actual. Everything is satisfactual. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day. Wonderful feeling. Feeling this way. It's a great song. I, I want to sing it for you. But it wouldn't be a great song then. Amen. It's lively. It's peppy. Problem with that song is it's not realistic. We don't live in a Walt Disney world, do we? Not every day is a wonderful day. We don't always enjoy plenty of sunshine. And Mr. Bluebird doesn't always rest on our shoulder. Everything is not satisfactual. Our feelings aren't always wonderful. But your contentment, your joy, 
doesn't depend on that. That's the point. The attitude of contentment is not natural. It didn't come easy for Paul. He learned to be content. He learned to be satisfied. He learned to be joyful. He's a remarkable example. The philosophers of Paul's day spoke a lot about contentment. They thought highly of it, but they thought very differently than Paul. They, they, thought, they saw it as something that, it was an expression of self-sufficiency. I am content. I don't need you. I don't need anything. That's how they viewed contentment. They, they taught about using their minds to overcome em, emotions so that they had this emotional detachment. Paul uses the same term, but he uses it very differently. He redefines contentment. It's, it's having a satisfied mind in any condition. It's, it's finding inner satisfaction in God alone. It's finding joy because he provides everything you need and you know this. It's experiencing his peace. It's experiencing confidence in difficult times that he is with you. It's consciously enjoying the fact that God is good even when your circumstances aren't. The best book you could ever read on this, on contentment, is by a Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs. We have it in the bookstore. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every situation. It's the opposite of grumbling and complaining. If you're reading through the Bible, you're saying, man, we have a natural tendency, don't we? Aren't those Israelites something? Natural tendency to complain, to be ungrateful, to grumble. And you, you notice God does not like that. It does not please Him. Contentment is the opposite. And it's good news in our text. This contentment can occur in the worst of circumstances. Think about all the difficult circumstances that the Apostle Paul faced. Financial problems. He faced hunger and poverty. Physical illnesses and injuries. We learn from the New Testament that he experienced severe illness we know he was beaten with whips and rods. One time they thought he was dead and just left him. He had memories of his sinful past. He remembered persecuting Christians. He had a high view of marriage, but he remained single his entire life. It had to be a temptation for him. He had job struggles. He was a pastor, the most difficult job in the world. He carried a heavy burden. I'm kidding. He carried a heavy burden because he, he had concern for churches and individuals. His job was stressful. In prison, he was essentially unemployed. He couldn't do his job. He was opposed and persecuted by unbelievers. He was rejected, abandoned, and forgotten by Christians. His joy, his contentment was not based on his circumstances. The second thing we learned vital thing to learn. Contentment 
is a work of the Spirit. It's the power of God. It's from God's strength. That's, that's what Paul is highlighting here. This attribute of God, his power, that's where contentment comes from. It's good news. This text is good news. God is making a powerful promise to everyone in Christ. He is promising through his power, through the grace of God, the gift of joy, of contentment. It doesn't come from perfect circumstances. It doesn't come when it's 68.5. It comes from the Lord. In chapter 4, Paul says he found joy in the Lord in verse 4. He, he talked about knowing the Lord is near in verse 5. He found hope in the peace of God and in the God of peace in verses 7 and 9. He found power to be content in the midst of adversity and prosperity through the one who gives him strength, through Christ. God promises to empower us to be content. Contentment is a work of the Spirit, and this is a promise from God because of the work of Christ that we can enjoy contentment. And finally, contentment has to be learned. It comes, it comes from God, so how do we get it? Can we, can we take a pill? Can we find a fountain of contentment somewhere and take a drink? Do we just wake up one day and the Lord does it? Do we cast out a demon of discontent? No. Contentment is learned. You learn it at school. The school of experience. You learn. You seek God in the midst of it all. And you learn the secret of being content. It's about becoming Christ-like. It's about Christian growth. Jesus, the writer of Hebrews said, learned obedience from what he suffered. And we learn contentment through experiences, good and bad. So, escape to Christ. Come to Christ. Go to Christ. Look for Christ. Seek Christ. When we, we live through, regardless of your circumstances, when you live through adversity and prosperity by faith like this, knowing, trusting, believing what the Bible says about God's character, His goodness, His promises, you are going to learn contentment. God's going to do a work in your soul. Sometimes we have to repent of believing things that aren't true about God and aren't true about our circumstances and His providence in our lives. Sometimes we have to re repent of trying to find satisfaction, joy in other things, in people, in experiences. We learn contentment when we progressively apply truth all along the way. And the Lord works in our soul through our trials and our hardships. Jerry Bridges, finally, he says, we must learn to live by the realization that whatever our situation might be, it's far better than we deserve. Let's give him thanks. Father, thank you today for your word. Everyone in this room needs your help, Lord, as we pursue joy in Christ. We want to escape the curse in this fallen world. Lord, we want to find 
peace. We want to find joy. We want to find love. We want to find harmony. Lord, lead us to Christ, every one of us. Lord, this is a call for everyone in here who's not a Christian to come to Christ. This is a call call for every believer who has trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. It's a call for them to come again to Him to meet their needs. Lord, I pray that You would fill us, help us, Lord, strengthen us, empower us. Give us joy in Jesus Christ, we pray. And it's in His name. Amen. Please stand. We're going to turn to worship. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.